Hello, agents, and welcome to Podcast 13. This week, we will be covering episode 111, titled Nevermore. And here's your summary for the week. Micah is forced to reckon with her strained relationship with her father when an artifact places him in mortal peril. Pete and Claudia work their first case in the field together, and McPherson grows bolder. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited for this episode. (laughs) Alright friends, we have no writer appreciation corner for this week. Not because we don't deeply appreciate our writers, but because this episode was written by David Simpkins, who we covered in our 101A section. All I want to say about him is that I'm really glad that he's still on the show after everything we've learned from Eddie McClintock and Jack Kenny about how he show ran the pilot and then sci-fi went a different direction. I'm glad that he is still on the show because that speaks to such a good relationship between him and the new showrunner Jack Kenny and everyone involved in the show so that makes me happy. And because we don't have a writer's appreciation corner this week, I would like to update something we did a while ago, which is our appreciation for our international followers. We gave a shout out to about four countries, which we were and still are extremely thrilled to have as listeners. But uh, we've had a few more countries join the ranks, and so I will be giving a shout out to them. Thank you so much to our listeners from Spain and Kazakhstan. Uh, Also, thank you to our listeners from Ukraine, Switzerland, Denmark, Hong Kong, Ireland, India, Japan, Brazil, Malaysia, Norway, the Philippines, Puerto Rico, the Seychelles, Lebanon, the Netherlands, Romania, Austria, Colombia, New Zealand, and... Guernsey, who is still a major portion of our listenership. Oh, and the Republic of Korea. Oh, wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Jill. And thank you so much to people far and near who support us and, you know, are part of our community of agents. Yes. One final note. It's not really a corrections corner, but a something corner, is that... I rewatched episode 110 with a native Spanish speaker because we discussed the Spanish at the end of the episode and learned that it is ungrammatical Spanish that apparently sounds like a caveman would talk. It doesn't really conjugate well. Um, but that just made it more fun and interesting that Pete is using bad Spanish because he's trying to learn, but maybe not successfully. Yes. All right. Let's jump in. Uh, We begin with the previously on, which I know is important to Jill. It has clips and pieces from a variety of episodes. First of all, reminding us from 103 Magnetism that Micah had a very difficult relationship with her father. Also reminding us of the shenanigans with McPherson and that plotline. So it's setting us up for really a what's the word, like a serial narrative. Now we need to be paying attention to previous episodes for this big season finale buildup to really work. Awesome. So our episode proper begins with a Chiron in Colorado City, Colorado, outside of Bering and Sons Bookstore, which we have known from the pilot is Micah's home and her parents' business. 
And Jillian, what color is that bookstore? It is a purpley shade of periwinkle. I love it. I like that this theory is holding true throughout. That makes me very happy. Um, Yes. And outside of Baring and Son's bookstore, a delivery man leaves a package at the door. And Mr. Baring comes out to get it. (laughs) I, for whatever reason, missed this particular episode when it first aired. So I didn't see it until I did the rewatch just separately on my own. And I remember texting Miranda while screaming out loud in my apartment, Colonel Ty! You texted me in all caps, IS COLONEL TY MICAH'S DAD?! (laughs) Anyway, um, when I recovered from my shock, I realized immediately that an actor's spotlight was necessary. So, here's our actor's spotlight on the wonderful Michael Hogan. Michael Hogan has an incredibly long career that stretches back... I mean, his first credit on IMDb is 1978. His first long-running work was on the TV series The Littlest Hobo from 1980 to 1984. Miranda is suppressing laughter. I am snorting. (laughs) I'm not dissing that. I have no idea what that franchise is, but it sounds adorable. He played a series of roles on that one. The reason I bring up the title The Littlest Hobo is because his next long-running work was a stint on the series The Little Vampire. Was he especially small? Like, I don't understand. He was on the TV series version of War of the Worlds, so that's a bit of a peek into his early days of sci-fi. He also was in the Twilight Zone, which is awesome. He just has credit after credit after credit he was on The Outer Limits. He was Detective Tony Lagozo on Cold Squad from 1998 to 1999 for 28 episodes. That's pretty good. Miranda, his credit list is so long. <laughs> <laughs> he was a recurring character on Monk as well as Criminal Minds. And then we get to the good stuff in 2003 where he was Colonel Ty on the TV miniseries Battlestar Galactica and went on to be a major role in the television series version of Battlestar Galactica and all of its related TV movies, related TV miniseries, related web series. Huge part of that world and has been really on the forefront of a lot of great indie and science fiction content ever since. He also had a two-year stint on The L Word as a recurring character, Erwin Fairbanks. He was also on Numbers. He was in Psych. He was on Smallville. He's just been doing a lot of great stuff. He also was on Jane Espenson and Brad Bell's web series, Husband, as the character of Brady's father, which is excellent. And You may notice that the actress who plays his wife in this episode of Warehouse 13 is named Susan Hogan, which I thought was an interesting coincidence, and yes, they are married in real life. That is... Wait, so you mean Micah's mom and dad are a married couple in real life, even though they're acting as her mom and dad in the series? In real life, totally married, been married since 1976. Yes, she, she, Susan Hogan, is also an actress who has a lot of stage experience as well as TV and film experience. She was on Battlestar Galactica in a few episodes with him and also 
was on the Little Vampire TV series from 1985 to oh So lots of fun crossover there, which I find delightful. And just another randomly delightful fact, they're all Canadian. And that concludes our Actors Spotlight. That was amazing. I am just blown away by the amazing actors that we bring in from just a huge variety of sci-fi for this show. They really, I mean, we generally view Warehouse 13 as a little show, but it it really is, uh, what's the word? It's like a nexus. Yes, a nexus. That's, that's a better word than I was thinking. Yes, it's just a nexus. So thank you so much. So, back to the scene. Yes, he opens the package to reveal an old book, and this contains handwritten cursive writing, and when he looks at it, he just goes, oh my. And so we get a sense that it's something, it's obviously old and exciting for a bookstore owner, and he takes it in to have a look. And because my brain is the way it is, it immediately connected it to a pop culture reference from Bridesmaids, where Rebel Wilson's character confesses to reading Kristen Wiig's character's diary. And it's like, sorry, yeah, I didn't realize that it was your diary. I just thought it was a very sad handwritten book. So (laughs) (laughs) the gif of that will be in the show notes. And from there, we go to Berlin, Germany, where Micah enters McPherson's apartment wearing purple gloves and with her gun drawn. She is on the comm with Artie and Claudia and looks around the small apartment and just very frustrated goes, he's gone, it's another dead end. Meanwhile, Pete is on the comm and screams, found him, but he's not on screen yet. And Artie says, Pete's having better luck in Montreal, so now we learn that Pete is in Montreal, which makes me really anxious because it's bad news bears when him and Micah are apart on a normal case, and now they're in different countries, do not like. Yes, and I am just pointing out again, like our Marie Antoinette Blade scene, Micah is in just the sexiest spy gear. The neckline of this top is incredible, but it's a very brief scene because then we go to Pete, actually having McPherson in his sights. Um, And luckily, both Artie and Claudia are involved in this, like, covert ops mission because police are following Pete. And Artie... He is communicating with normal police, but but he tells them to back off because he says... And this is the translated quote. Abandon the current pursuit on St. Catherine. This is an RCMP matter. Yeah, the RCMP is the federal branch of the police. So just like in America, there are these levels of bureaucracy that must be followed. But with horses. But with horses. Well, <laughs> I yes, sure. Let's, let's <laughs> say with horses. I feel like they're honorary horses at this point, but I don't actually know. Um, so... He tells Pete to be careful for this mysterious reason. We do not know if he has them, which has them could be any number of things. So Micah overhears this in her comm, and she has a worried expression on her face while something else is catching her attention in the fake-out apartment. Um, There is a small wooden box that she opens almost in slow motion. Like, it's a very quick scene, so they have a little bit of an effect to show you that this is important. Yes, and 
Micah says, Artie, he has the symbol, which was funny for me to write out in my notes because I was like, wait, which version am I writing down? We get the answer to the musical symbol later, not like a symbol of something, which in this show, you never know. It could be a specific, like, handwritten symbol. So that was interesting because even when we got information, we still didn't quite get all the information because of how language works. And at this moment, Pete has chased McPherson up against a chain link fence. Um, He's got him blocked in, so we think maybe this confrontation is finally going to happen. Pete urges McPherson at the end of a Tesla to give it up because he's cornered, but we're about to find out what the symbols are. Um, They are the music version of the symbols. Two small ones on McPherson's fingers, and he, with a glint in his eye that makes me extremely nervous, makes the shh gesture at Pete. Pete looks confused, just as Artie tells him to get out of there and cover his ears, and it seems like it's too late. Because McPherson goes ding, which is my note for he clicks the symbols together and... I just want to note that the way he, like, click clicks the symbols, what am I thinking of? It's like a mariachi or a... Castanetas? Castanetas, that's what I'm thinking of. He, like, does it with this little bit of sass and, like, swinging his hips. Um, and it would be funny if he wasn't so evil. I know, but this is the thing, is that he has this personality that Roger Reese captures so well, where, uh, you know, like Jack said, he's a complex character, he's not all villainy and, like, you know, a psychopath, but he believes in what he's doing, he's a a well-motivated bad guy. Absolutely, and we see this great, expansive, slow-motion shot of sound waves pulsing through the area and shattering windows on police cars. It emits a noise that's so painful that Artie and Claudia have to take out their earpieces and even Micah screams a bit. Micah, of course, because she is Micah, immediately wants to know if everything's okay. Artie asks if Pete's okay. We have that tension because we know how upsetting it is when Pete and Micah are far apart. And we feel as bad that Pete may be hurt as we do that Micah's not there because we know she has such an attachment to protecting her partners and that she feels responsible for what happens to them even if they do something wrong that's on them, that's their own fault. So it's a very tense situation and Pete's not answering anyone because he's unconscious on the ground, which is alarming. But I do want to say... After our interview with Jack Kenny, <laughs> I did notice that the Tesla by Pete on the ground was super broken. <laughs> <laughs> All the glass around it was shattered, and I just thought that was so funny because now we know that someone had to keep making them for him from a small artisan shop. So, we are really worried about Pete. We do see he he stirs a little bit, so we know, you know, he is conscious a little bit. Before we can see, you know, how injured Pete is, we transition back to an image of Micah's dad reading that old book, and a really creepy effect happens. I think the sound is part of what makes this so creepy. The whispering. 
Yeah, it's well, it's whispering, but when the the words start to come out of the book, it's like a sucking noise. It's like they're being scooped out. It's like parcel tongue. Oh, it is like um like that, and or like the episode of Buffy with the gnarl that Jillian literally can't even watch with the sound on. Why would you bring that up? (laughs) I just wanted. Oh my gosh! On Patreon, we'll we'll make a we'll make a gif of Jillian's face when I said that. Uh, so there's a really gross sound. He hears this dark voice as the words from the page move not only into his fingertips, but further up his skin. And if we had any doubt about who our historical figure was going to be, the whispering voice says nevermore, which is the biggest clue for any even remotely interested person in literature. And Michael Hogan does this incredibly well because it is a pained, scary scream. And we see these words go all the way up into his face. And he really sells it, especially. I thought I had this thought a lot as someone who's seen this episode multiple times at this point. And I say that because when I first watched the episode, I was just engrossed by his performance. So this isn't a knock against that. But he comes in for this one episode to, on his end essentially occasionally look extremely agonized while reading a book there's a lot of emotion and stuff that he is being asked to do around something that without all of the effects there must have looked pretty silly and he just he really committed and did a really good job um so that takes us back to pete lying on the ground and Artie is like you have to get up you have to get up pete And he does so disorientedly. He says, Mom, I'm up. I won't be late. Which is the second time when he's woken up from some sort of disoriented state and has immediately talked about his mom. Someone's a mama's boy, but that's that's exactly who Pete is. It does not surprise me at all. Mm Mm-hmm. So he does reassure the team that he managed to cover his ears, which is a great relief to everyone involved. Yes. And Artie asks where McPherson is, and Pete tells Artie that McPherson is gone. And just at that moment, Micah gets a phone call from her mom, and she answers to find her mom crying on the phone. Uh, We don't hear immediately what happened, but we see images of Pete feeling pretty defeated and emotional and Artie tells him just come home which I really liked of Artie he doesn't sound upset at all there's no berating of how could you let him go which you know just a few episodes ago that would have happened so this is very nice growth but that sort of appreciation ends very quickly when we cut back to Micah, who is teary-eyed, and she says, I need to go home. I'm going home. My father's dying. Which I really liked the way that line was written because we know that before, Micah has asked permission for time off and been denied. So I need to go home implies asking but then she says i'm going home like never mind i'm not asking this is what's happening and i really appreciated that yeah i just completely agree and so from there we go out to the opening credits do 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 (laughs) do 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 (laughs) yes i just did my dance we come in on a chiron over portland oregon at the kingford academy 
and there is some jerk who trips another guy. I literally wrote, some jerk. Like, those were my exact words. He trips another guy in order to make him drop all of his books, and when the guy drops everything, we see a school photo. As this flies out, I actually made a mistake. I said, look, it's Todd from Todd in the Book of Pure Evil. <laughs> it's not. Um, it's an actor who I am going to shine a mini spotlight on. So this actor who plays the bully, Greg, is named Alec Medlock. And I just wanted to do a very small shout out to him. Um, he's an American actor. He was born in Torrance, California, which is where Buffy the Vampire Slayer was filmed. Like Sunnydale High School is Torrance High School. So that's a fun fact. And the reason I bring him up is because we know that Allison Scaliotti got her start on Drake and Josh. And this actor, Alec Medlock, played a character named Craig in Drake and Josh. And more recently, he has done a lot of minor voice acting, um, but he has done that for Finding Nemo, for some of the Monsters, Inc. sequels, for Dinotopia, and he was a named character in Star Wars The Clone Wars. So, a cool guy, just a quick side actor, and as I mentioned, he is not Alex House, which is the actor from Todd in the Book of Pure Evil, but I thought for sure he was because they look so similar. I will put side-by-side -side pictures in the show notes for y'all. Yeah, if you're unfamiliar, that is just a parody show. It's a Canadian parody, basically, of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but with a bunch of boys who are possessed by a, like, demon book. It's crass and gross but hilarious so just a fun fact um if you want a random uh actor look-alike doppelganger for the day that was awesome i love your brain thank you for sharing <laughs> this with us back at the kingford academy greg ugh, greg <laughs> picks up the picture that flew out of we don't know his name at this point so i just called him the lanky kids mm-hmm spilled belongings and says does tamara know you're stalking her or is this just for makeup tips which first of all don't be gross greg and second of all i just have a quick fun fact that the person who plays tamara is named tamara wow yeah <laughs> the last she does have a last name in the script that is different than her real last name so i think it was just a major coincidence <laughs> but i thought that was excellent that happened uh, and then Lanky Kid doesn't answer, just looks kind of upset. And But n notably, he doesn't look violently at Greg. He just looks like he wants this interaction to be over, which I think is important in terms of the way artifacts affect him later. He's not He doesn't yeah. seem like someone prone to violence of any kind. Even though Greg, for no reason gets angry when looking at the picture, rips it up, and confettis it on top of lanky kid's stuff, and then just goes, boo-hoo, baby, really menacingly, which, fine, whatever, I guess that might make you look cool to your friends in high school, but by saying boo-hoo, baby, while trying to be tough at the same time, Greg, everything you're doing makes you look like the butt face that you are. I would like to quote the podcast My Favorite Murder and say, Toxic masculinity ruins the party again. <laughs> yes. 
Or maybe it's fragile masculinity ruins the party again. Either way, both of those things are true. And there's even a hint of like homophobia, like with the makeup comment, like that this bully is demeaning the lanky kid for no reason, for being lanky and like less stereotypically masculine, like whatever. That's so, so not even acceptable for any reason. Yeah. Anyway, we go back to Lena's where Artie is mid-conversation with Lena. But I do want to say that I'm just so happy because, as you said, mid-conversation, but he's carrying a tea tray and a glass of lemonade out from the kitchen area. And we've had some issues in the show where it seems as though Lena does all the caretaking and we aren't sure how we feel about that. Uh, So it's nice to see that it's not always Lena who's taking on those kinds of chores. They take care of each other. They do. And so he is describing that McPherson had put decoys all over the world. He narrowed it down to two of them, and that's what the mission was about. And he brings the lemonade to continue explaining this. But it's not Lena. Mrs. Frederick appears. She does not want lemonade or pie. Yeah, and Artie gets so flustered, and most of the time, when I see Mrs. Frederick, the only thing that goes through my brain on repeat is, I love CCH Powder, she's so cool, she's so good at acting. (laughs) But Artie, I think, got the upper hand in this scene, because the range of emotions that he expresses very quickly with, like, two words that aren't even strung together in a sentence are just, he goes... From flustered to scared to annoyed to apologetic for being annoyed and then just awkwardly offering her lemonade. Just all in a very short space of time that you know was all actor's choice. You can't script something like that. They engage in this conversation where she's upset. She's immediately on his back about taking a shot in the dark in the pursuit of McPherson. And they continue this metaphor To the point where, you know, Artie says, we had him, like, he was right there. And she's like, you didn't have enough caliber. And Artie trips himself up by saying, Pete's caliber is very large. (laughs) And I, like, snort laughed out loud at that because it's an accident. It's completely a a flub that Artie even catches himself and is like, we gotta stop with that. That's not what I meant, but you know what I meant. It's so funny. And the funny moment is great because Mrs. Frederick reveals information that makes previous things make more sense to us and immediately makes the current situation more tense. So the small symbols we realize were extraordinarily dangerous because Mrs. Frederick reveals that two policemen were found dead at the scene. Uh, which definitely explains why Micah and Claudia and Artie were extremely worried and just saying, just get out of there, Pete, cover your ears. Artie and Mrs. Frederick continue to argue, and the crux of the argument is that Artie thinks he acted swiftly and to the best of his ability and got pretty darn close, and Mrs. Frederick thinks that he acted rashly and imprecisely and didn't stick to the agreement that they had that was they were to go over information together and pursue McPherson together. And she calls out specifically all the ways that Artie was unprepared. And Artie just nods, wordlessly conceding that she was right, because of course she was right, because she's Mrs. Frederick. 
and Mrs. Frederick is not playing and asks where Micah and Pete are. Given the tone of the current conversation, I don't think it would have won him any points with Mrs. Frederick to say, my agents demanded a day off, so I had that happen, because he is used to being in charge, and while again, as we talked about in the last episode, he made the right call in the situation, that's not going to come off looking well to his superiors, so he just says, out, and Mrs. Frederick says something very interesting, which is, manage my assets better, or I swear on the ashes of the first 12 warehouses, I will take them away. That is amazing. Um, Our Jack Kenny interview gave us the suggestion that Jack Kenny created those first 12 warehouses during the Regents episode, which was just previous to this 110. So I think that you know, that funny anecdote about he wrote it, you know, late at night from Wikipedia, and then the next day it was on the sci-fi website. I think that, first of all, he seemed insecure about it, but it's an amazing backstory, and even if it was the roughest idea, it was perfect, and we love you, Jack. But also, clearly, the other writers and network and everybody involved found that as compelling as we all do, because they worked it into this in such a flawless way. And I think this is one of the first, if not, this is the first reference to the other 12 warehouses, but not in an exposition dump, not in anything boring, in something where the stakes are high and the information can have maximum effect on our excitement. Yes, I agree. And a part of that sentence that struck me what she says, manage my assets better. Within the hierarchy, this is the first time that we get sort of direct confirmation that Mrs. Frederick herself was responsible for recruiting Pete and Micah. This wasn't just Artie. Mrs. Frederick recognized them as assets, and so she may be tough on Artie, but it's because she does also care about Pete and Micah, which we were left a bit in doubt about in a previous episode, when she was consoling Artie about Claudia and said, in terms of, you can't save everyone. That's something to keep in mind when it comes to Latimer and Baring. So this makes me think, and we'll get confirmation in not so many words down the line, that she's seen a lot of agents come and go, perhaps more than Artie has seen come and go, and she has to remain professionally detached but she does care very deeply about the agents and views them as her assets and as part of her responsibility, which I really liked seeing. Um, and she starts to go, and Artie stops her and says, I can get McPherson again, which I think is really interesting because when he gets called out, his first reaction every time now that we've seen a similar situation is to assert his own capability to do the job. Even though that's rarely the thing that's in question, he wants to seem useful when something else is perceived as a failure. So he says, I can get McPherson again. And she says, I don't doubt it, but make no moves against McPherson without consulting me first. And then he goes, yes, ma'am. Do you have, 
And then he turns around and finds her gone in the Mrs. Frederick way that she does. And he just goes, how does she do that? I love that even he doesn't know. And I love that the editing team put in that punchline music when she's saying that. It's the warehouse theme, but in an upbeat, twinkly tone. And it, I think, keeps the mood the the way that the show wants it to be. There's high stakes, there's something serious, but it still is a show about home and family and these characters that we love. So I have one final note about this scene with CCH Pounder because I was a ballerina for 10 years and one of the hardest things to do in dance is to maximize your use of vertical space because dancers, and I think in a very similar way, actors are very good at moving horizontally across like a space, a theater, whatever. And Mrs. Frederick, if you watch her in this scene, is seated on the couch. She stands up at just the opportune time. She moves across while getting like a kind of following shot angle from these cameras. It's just incredible that a lot of the skill is CCH Pounders, and a lot of the skill is also the way that these people are showing her power and authority through completely nonverbal cues just blew me away. It's really good. That's so smart. I never would have realized that, but you're totally right. But your brain is great. (laughs) So, meanwhile... Back at the Academy, which is a very swanky-looking Academy, by the way, the kids um, are all sitting in what I identified as a reading room. For our listeners in the UK, like this really looks like a library reading room, which is not so common in the US. It's so large. There's so many bookcases. I'm not ever quite sure what it is because the English teacher is teaching a class there, but it does somewhat look at the very least like a library. I literally just called it the fancy ass classroom in my notes. Perhaps that is what private school classrooms look like. That That's a rich person school right there that we're looking at. Yeah, it see, it looks and feels very East Coast to me. Like, it's like the Chilton School in Connecticut and Gilmore Girls or something. Not to say we don't have rich people or swanky schools on the West Coast, but I believe that the reason they had this school in Portland is because the bookshop with Micah's family is in Colorado, and those areas are geographically much closer than, for example, Baltimore, where Edgar Allan Poe actually lived. If we had to create the legwork in our minds that the characters were flying back and forth between Colorado and Baltimore, which is like a across the entire country sort of flight that would take you many hours. It would detract from, I think, the suspending of disbelief. So this is where even more fun with the set comes in because we are now going to officially make this a segment called Words on surfaces. Words on surfaces. <laughs> that was adorable. So, pause your televisions, everybody. The students in this fancy classroom are taking an exam. They're using blue books, very fancy. And we see the prompt of the exam on the green chalkboard behind them, which says, Charles Schulz versus Ernest Hemingway 
compare and contrast. Oh my gosh, you guys. I want to write this essay. I wish a teacher had given me this essay. I perhaps will write this essay <laughs> at, at some point because it's so good. So if you don't know why this is amazing, or if you thought this was random, the reason is because Charles Schulz is the American cartoonist who did Peanuts, which is like Charlie Brown and Snoopy and all of them. Ernest Hemingway, obviously the modern American writer, who uh, does, I mean, the piece of Ernest Hemingway I know is Old Man and the Sea, but he's done a bunch of- The sun of, also rises. Yeah. And so Hemingway is a writer that is not in my field because I am neither an Americanist nor a scholar of, you know, 20th century literature. But, and safely say, he's known for his, like, economical prose, like, writing very minimally, um, having a lot of dark and heavy themes. Our expert last week actually referenced him because Ernest Hemingway also died by suicide. But you may have never even heard that in your life because of gender bias, that his personal life is often far less important to the way we remember his literary work, which is sort of depressing and existential at times. But uh, again, it's not the same, the same all-encompassing uh, classification that we get with someone like Sylvia Plath. So you may be asking yourself, how on earth would the creator of a beloved children's cartoon slash comic strip be able to be compared and contrasted to Ernest Hemingway, but those set prop people that Jack Kenny shouted out to have done something really brilliant because there is a incredibly thoughtful and like academic critique of the Peanuts cartoons called Three Nuts. That's number three, E-A-N-U-T-S, which points out that the Peanuts cartoons are a four-panel strip. And because of that, and because of the conventions of drawing cartoons, it follows a joke structure, but the way that Schulz writes his jokes is that the first three panels are always just pointing out something mundanely bleak and somewhat depressing that then in the fourth panel gets turned around at the expense of one of the main characters. And so we will have examples in the show notes for you. Um, but what this ultimately does, in the words of author Daniel Leonard, Charles Scholl's Peanuts comics often conceal the existential despair of their world with a closing joke at the character's expense. With the last panel omitted, despair pervades all. Um, so we also have a Mental Floss article that explains in very, I think, accessible terms the sort of existential crisis behind Peanuts and how somber and upsetting they can be if you view them in this light. And I don't know anything about the personal life of Charles Schulz, but I do know that a lot of times comedy is a coping mechanism for depression and despair. So the idea that a cartoonist would actually really struggle with these difficult themes in a completely similar way to Ernest Hemingway is 
a great point of compare and contrast. And I think similarly, the genre of children's style cartoon panels for the newspaper. Um, fun fact, you can view all of the Peanuts comics online through a variety of sources, one of which is the Library of Congress, which catalogs the actual newspaper that they were published in. Um, but those media forms for Ernest Hemingway as an economical, minimal writer, and then the comic as this super limited space, it's totally brilliant. And I think, like I said, I could write a great essay and those swanky, fancy school kids with their really cool teacher, Mr. Ives is his name, could also write some amazing things. So, back to the Academy. In TV shows, when they have to film a high school scene, they almost always have it in an English class. Like, Buffy has them in English class all the time. I just rewatched Veronica Mars, and they're in English class all the time. And I would like to suggest that this is because even though I'm not a TV writer, I am a writer. And writers love to invoke other writers and influences and literature as well as the themes of those pieces. So the English teacher says at the very end of the class as it's getting out that next time they're going to be talking about lost love and jealousy and what those English class scenes often provide is like a verbalizing of the themes even if you are a more casual viewer and you don't like get super excited like me, a fellow English teacher would, you have those words in mind so that you can apply them to what you're about to see. Yeah, man. From there, uh, we do get a close-up of a display case that features a picture of Poe and some stuff that looks like it probably belongs to him, like a quill and some old pictures and some other stuff. And at some point, I don't think it's directly in this scene, but at some point we notice that there's a giant taxidermied raven <laughs> on top of the display case. But I it mean, that English teacher knew his stuff and was a fan of Edgar Allan Poe. And you know that school's paying him good, because those are expensive. Yeah. Uh, and he assigns on the way out John Steinbeck's East of Eden, so I will provide a summary of that in the show notes as well. Great. I have never read it. <laughs> so this is when Mr. Ives, we don't get that name for a while, but it's easier with it. He asks Bobby to come here, so now we know Lanky Kid is named Bobby, and confronts him about being distracted. He then asks if Bobby has talked to, and he gestures at a girl. And this was interesting to me because the teacher has noticed or has some sort of confidence with Bobby to know that he likes this girl, Tamara. Um, do they say Tamara or Tamara? I think they say Tamara, but my mouth kept getting it wrong. So I think Tamara is right. Cause I kept thinking Tamara Maori. He, says, hold on, I'm going to get something for you, which is interesting. And while the teacher disappears, Bobby is looking nervously at Tamara, who was collecting the blue books from the exam. So that's just sort of giving them some awkward time. Tamara is nice. I think she's kind of neutral on Bobby. Like, she doesn't like him, but she's not a mean person. She's not a bully like Greg. 
and she's you know she's a cute high school girl and and this seems to be just sort of a normal thing that's going on where he has a crush on her um eventually the teacher returns and he offers bobby a book and at this point i think tamara has left because he says this is some poetry just the bees now, I believe these were the bees he listed. Blake, Burns, and Byron. Yep. Um, let them do the talking for you. Can I just can I just say my note before you go into actual like things? Please. The only thing I wrote down about it was good intentions teach, but boy howdy, it's a book called How to Come On Way Too Strong. Yeah! <laughs> oh my gosh! So okay, okay, English teacher moment. Don't let Byron do the talking for you. No. Don't let Blake do the talking for you. Neither of those are good, like, not good choices at all. Like, oh my gosh. And, oh, okay, whatever. I mean, (laughs) you know, okay. Byron, if you didn't know, is historically called by one of his many mistresses, mad, bad, and dangerous to know. He is a person who was very historically interesting, and I'm not going to jump on the Byron bashing train because I love his little bisexual pants, but he is a bad example of how to have healthy relationships. He's good at wooing, but he's not good at literally any other aspect of relationship. He wasn't even good at college. Like, he should (laughs) not be your example. But, okay, back to the (laughs) in-game session. These, yeah, these are great intentions, but we're going to see that even the Blake poem ends badly in a moment here. So he gives the student Bobby some poetry. We continue to hear whispering and creepy voices clearly linked to the display cabinet, and then we go to a different scene. Yes, in the bookstore in Colorado... Micah rushes inside and goes straight to her mom, and her mom is all bright and sunshiny, and it's like, oh, I tried to call you, and Micah just says, oh, my phone battery died, which to me was extremely understandable for someone who mostly uses Farnsworths. Like, of course she would forget to charge her phone before going. She just, like, left and went and was like, I'm getting on the first plane out of here. Her mom reveals that... Micah's dad is fine, and she's sorry to have scared her, which, even if that was true, which obviously it's not, otherwise this movement of story wouldn't happen, it's still alarming that she could go from literally sobbing that her husband is dying to everything's fine. Like, that's not a normal swing. If you don't call your daughter, like, and have her come home thinking her father's on her deathbed only to tell her that he's fine. That's not how illness works. You need recovery time. And we saw the scene happen, but it indicates to Micah, who didn't, that something is abnormal about, like, going from thinking he's dying to being totally fine. So she apologizes, and then Michael's dad enters. Yeah. Michael. Micah's dad enters, and it's a super weird interaction. He barely says hello, barely looks at her, tells Micah she wasted her trip, and asks if she brought her gun, in a a way that indicates he would be bothered if the answer is yes. 
and she just goes, yes, it's downstairs, packed and disassembled, um, which is a hint at, like, the strained relationship. There's no ease. Micah's still mostly talking to her mom. There's not really any kind of major interaction between her and her father yet, and Micah is checking with her mom, making sure it wasn't a stroke. Her mom says, it wasn't a stroke, but, oh man, you should have seen how your dad was screaming. And he says, I've never screamed in my life. And then, you know, she and Micah share a look. And then we learn the wife's name is Jeannie. So Micah's mom's name is Jeannie. All communication seems to be going through Jeannie at this point. Micah is asking Jeannie about her dad. And her dad tells Jeannie, get the girl some food. They're not... They're talking about each other in front of each other to someone else. It's this weird wall between them that's really upsetting. Um, and Micah says, I'm not hungry. And he goes, well, it's because you starved your hunger nerve to death, which is like a very dad thing to say and would be kind of funny in most circumstances, except for the fact that the only things that he's said to her so far, like directly to her, are that she wasted a trip and it's, a criticism about her appearance and a dismissal of her feelings about food, which is, those are all very touchy things. And at some point, Micah just goes, dad, I've been here like what a minute. It's very, it's very uncomfortable. I agree entirely because I wrote that our first impression is that every interaction with Micah's dad is critical. He's criticizing her work, and we know how much her work means to her, like her essential being down to everything. Yes. Um, and... And then... Out of nowhere, Pete comes out! Of course he is A, eating, and B, complimenting Micah's mom just exorbitantly. Already calling her Mrs. B, by the way. Yes, Mrs. B! It's it's not surprising because we know that personality, especially that personality of like a, a straight man, is like all about charming the mom and like making a good impression on friends and family members. Like that is his character and it's not disingenuous. It's just exactly who Pete is. And we can tell from the look on Micah's face that she is mortified to see Pete there. Yes, Jillian. I'm going to give y'all a Yiddish lesson right now. Oh, yes! Yes. Micah looks like she wants to plot. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Which is, it's sort of like, you know how when you slump back in your chair in a dramatic fashion and go, Ugh. It's like that, <laughs> but with the energy, like, like I want to dramatically fall backwards and not be here anymore and sink through the floor. That is the emotion implied by this, and Micah is, mwah, perfection. It is amazing, and it's really funny to us, but then he tells Micah that he came because he knew she might need support, and that makes the whole scene make sense because it's only funny because Micah's dad is completely fine. If he was dying or, you know, had already passed away by the time Micah got there, if it was a real, something like a heart attack or a life-threatening experience, Pete would have been right. 
Micah would have needed someone because we know that she is capable of great emotional strength, but that she often, you know, has to suppress herself to be strong for other people. And Pete, being a dear friend, but not a relative of that family, would have been a great person to have to help carry her through a tough time if that was actually necessary. So to me, it shows that on the one hand, it's kind of um, an imposition, like it's he wasn't invited, and if the characters were different, that would be offensive. But Micah doesn't ask for help. Yes. Ever. So he was never going to be invited, and he knows that about her. I also think the scene works because Micah spends so much time worrying about and taking care of Pete, and it's nice to see a situation where we know the interaction goes both ways. It's just that within the world of the job, Micah is better suited to look after Pete, but within interpersonal dynamics, Pete is better suited to look after Micah. His dad died when he was really young. He had a differently abled sister and a single mom, and he was the youngest person in that dynamic, and his job, essentially, was to be the fun kid, to be the one who lifted the spirits, to be the person who brought some joy back into the house and into the lives of the people he cared about. So I think he knows how to be a bright light in a useful way in the face of tragedy. And so he was prepared to do that for Micah. Thank you. We see Pete and Micah interacting and being like, what are you doing here? And Micah's mom says something like, yeah, we've met this little Pip, and uh, this is what Micah's mom and dad are calling him. And this, to everything I can imagine to be true about these characters, is a reference to Charles Dickens' Great Expectations, which is adorable and funny and interesting, um, and would take me all day to explain how I feel about it, because Pip is like a cute, sweet boy who we root for, but also he ultimately, in my opinion, becomes entitled and annoying. So interesting and complicated novel and literary reference for us. Interesting. That's just a word I've heard from older folks saying, you're a pip. It also means a seed. So like the five <laughs> orange pips, he could be like a little sprout um, in like British slang, but I don't, I don't know. I'm inclined to believe you're right because there also is a David Copperfield reference later in this. Yeah, thing, so. see that's, I at first thought it was just a cute name, but when they made the David Copperfield reference, I was like, okay, like they had fun with this. They got all of their 19th century writers in that they possibly could. I think they like Pete. I think especially Jeannie likes Pete. Um, of course. But I think... Because it is uh, Micah's dad that calls Pete a pip. Like, he's mm. handing him purple gloves that <laughs> Pete left in the kitchen and goes, here you go, yeah, we met him, he's a pip. Uh, which Pete cautiously takes as a compliment. He doesn't fully understand what it means, but later he's <laughs> like, yeah, that's me, the pip. And um, But also Micah's dad calls Micah kiddo. So I think it's just a general disrespect towards Micah and the people who she works with and sort of calling them slightly insulting, juvenilizing terms. And this is where Pete and Micah step aside and 
he confronts her about the fact that she has not told her family about the new job. She is lying to them, and they think she is still in D.C. protecting the president. And Micah, in a hilarious callback to my theory from last week about his crotch being what the dodgeballs would obviously attack, says, if you, like, tell them, I will drop a dictionary on your crotch. (laughs) Which I laughed so hard at because... Anyone who grew up in a bookstore or, like you and I, spent substantial amounts of time in a bookstore would know, is the heaviest book there. (laughs) (laughs) Then, we switch scenes to see Mr. Baring, Micah's dad, continue reading a book. And it is just a quick transition from that image into a library with ivy growing up the walls. So that's where we see Bobby rather creepily taping Tamara's picture back together. And this is where the voices are continuing to whisper. And I wrote down some of the phrases. They say, beauty shall be the endless theme of praise and deeply to sleep from the heaven of her breast, etc., etc. Some creepy sort of images of beautiful women which is scary for anyone familiar with Poe because his ideal woman like Annabelle Lee is the example and the name for which I named my cat uh his ideal woman is like a dead corpse-like woman and and that's why we associate him in many ways with these gothic horror stories and creepy images and and things like that Um, In specific, I believe the poem that is referenced here is for Annie, um, which is about a dead woman being the ultimate beauty. As this scene continues, we start to see Bobby acting creepier the more Micah's dad reads the book uh at this point by now we've gotten the information that his dad that Micah's dad's name is Warren um but as Warren reads the book the book itself gets messier and more unhinged looking instead of straight lines of writing stuff is crossed out stuff is written diagonally there's more weird whispering and he seems to start to be able to see through Bobby's eyes So what we see is that this is transitioning between Colorado and Portland, showing us that Micah's dad, Warren, is reading the same words while Bobby is hearing those kinds of words. He has been enthralled by the glass cabinet where the Raven and Quill are, and he, with a sort of ghostly look on his face, shatters the glass and takes the quill and i just want to say we do see a a sort of medium shot in frame of bobby's face relatively close to the picture of edgar Allan poe and while i won't say that in general they look similar they did do a good job of finding someone who could be made up or made down depending on your (laughs) interpretation Mm -hmm. of it to take on the appearance of that famous photo of Edgar Allan Poe with the sunken eyes and the pronounced cheekbones and just sort of as Bobby seems to turn more inward, his physical features seem to sink inward. It's very interesting. Fun fact, 
If you live in Los Angeles, we know many of our listeners live in California, that is a famous daguerreotype of Edgar Allan Poe, and they have one at the Getty Museum, so you can go see it. Today I learned. (laughs) So we hear the words as this is all occurring, and we're cutting back and forth. Then, like before, Warren has those words begin seeping into his skin, and he screams again, causing this horrifying thing to happen to him except this time Pete and Micah and Jeannie are all there and it's Pete who immediately rushes into action and he sees Warren there with the book in his hands he had just received his purple gloves from Micah's dad who was like you left these downstairs Pip Um, (laughs) he puts his gloves on takes the book away, like, he clearly has immediately pieced together that this could be artifact-related and that he has to act responsibly, um, chucks the book out of the way, and, you know, the dialogue is like, what, you know, oh, no, no, what's happening? And to both Micah's mom and Micah, he says, your dad has an artifact. And we go out on a commercial break that is excellent with no outro animation because it's serious. I really appreciate when how well they know to put the animations or not put the animations in depending on the seriousness of the scene. And then we come back for Act 3 and we are right smack dab back in there in the bookstore where... Claudia rushes in carrying a giant goo vat and she bangs on the door until Micah answers and Jeannie immediately has many questions including what the vat is. (laughs) I just called it a carafe kind of going back to our inside joke from episode 101. Yes Micah introduces Claudia struggles to explain the vat and then thankfully Pete appears and has a serious I'm here to help face on and just calls Claudia over towards Warren. Micah goes to follow them, but Jeannie stops her and they have a quick, very tense exchange where (laughs) it starts off funny and great, where Jeannie goes, okay, who is the man in the little TV? And Micah just goes, Artie, um, doesn't say my boss. She's just trying to give as little information as possible. And my note there was, lol, OMG, y'all. You're going to have FaceTime soon. Just hang on. Uh, <laughs> and then Jeannie goes, is he a doctor? Micah says, no. Jeannie says that Warren belongs in a hospital. Micah says, this isn't medical. And Jeannie starts to get frustrated, not angry, just how do you know you're not a doctor? You protect the president. And Micah just goes, not anymore. I'm still with the government, but I'm doing this now. I'm gesturing at the general world around me when I say this. And I think earlier, the funny thing about this gesture is that Pete was confronting her about not telling the truth. And she said, what am I supposed to tell him? That I work for the most dangerous antiques roadshow? <laughs> Which is hilarious because I, unlike any other child, loved antiques roadshow I as did a kid. too, man. And it just basically prepared me to love Warehouse 13. Yes, and it's also a very apt comparison. It is! It really <laughs> is. When they're like, oh, I'm just, I just need an appraisal of this dresser. And they're like, actually, that was Thomas Jefferson's. Like, that's what happens. And it's going to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So. So then Jeannie basically demands to know what this is. And Micah can't explain. And just says, I'm trying to help dad, mom. Just let me do that. Trust me, please. And I think that in a weird way, having her dad be incapacitated at this point helped. Because now she's not confessing to her parents. She's, she's confessing to the parent who she trusts most to understand and let her live her life. Um, so Micah tells her mom to stay put and just sort of away from what she and Claudia and Pete are doing. Jamie looks to Claudia for comfort and Claudia really tries. And you can see in Allison's eyes that the character of Claudia having experienced her brother being lost to an artifact at a time when she didn't know that artifacts existed, completely empathizes with Jeannie in this moment. And Claudia actually works really hard to find the right words, even though there really isn't much she can say. I think it was very well acted and well written. Yeah, and Jeannie gives her this really pleading look and just says, what's going on? And instead of trying to give an answer that's not true, because I think that she remembers, you know, Professor, air quotes, Artie, giving answers that aren't true, and that's probably something that plagued her for a long time. Instead of saying something like that, she just says, they're really good at this. That doesn't answer the question as to what's going on, but it provides the comfort that Jeannie was ultimately looking for. So then Claudia goes to Pete and Micah, opens the goo vat, and Micah looks really angrily at uh, the book and goes, kill it. And <laughs> Pete says, duck and cover, and they put the book into the goo vat and shield their eyes and stuff. Then nothing happens for a moment, and then all of the goo in the vat goes dark. And... They check in with Jeannie, who confirms that the letters are still swirling inside uh, the skin of Warren's arms. And Micah thinks for a second while looking in the goo vat and dips Pete's gloved hand in there. Which, <laughs> which is great for so many reasons on so many character levels of like, yeah, Pete always needs to be the person to touch things so he got to but he's being respectful so he didn't do it but Micah did it for him because he's wearing the gloves it was just there's a lot going on that is lovable there um and so when she pulls his finger out of the vat she realizes that all of the goo in the vat has turned to ink which is alarming and Claudia just goes now what but for our fact-checking listeners, I do want to say that we see a glow come from the vat, so it doesn't stay ink. When he takes his finger out, it goes back to being goo, just for anyone who's concerned with such things. That's interesting. I noticed that a sort of electric spark moved across the, the goo once he removed his finger, um, but I didn't notice that, so thank you. And I think it's also fascinating that it turned to ink because when you see it turn black, just in terms of sort of like Western color symbolism, like black is the color of like, you know, black magic, scary um, villains in black robes, what have you. And so you get really freaked out. And then the fact that it's ink makes it a little less like direly alarming, but still 
more intriguing and in line with the story. So it was great. Yes. Artie explains through the Farnsworth that they are dealing with a bifurcated artifact. This is such, such cool world building. Um, this means that there is another half or possibly more somewhere and that they go together. They're like one cohesive artifact as a pair. So based on their evidence that they've collected, the journal and the ink, he says it's probably a pen. And I think that's very believable and also very helpful for the progress of this story. And Micah immediately jumps to McPherson. Like McPherson did this, absolutely. And she is upset about it. Because Artie tells them that the shipping address that sent the package was a complete fabrication. It was a fake address. And Artie, to his credit, while Pete immediately is like, oh my god, they're going after family now, this isn't good, Claudia wonders what McPherson wants, Micah immediately, solution-minded, and like trying to get to the crux of things, goes, well, it's obviously to hurt us because we're going after him. Artie takes all of their emotions, and instead of brushing past them and telling them to do their job, which we've spent a long time in this podcast covering as his primary tendency... He gets really empathetic for Artie and just goes, stop. We don't even know if McPherson sent it. If he did, it could be revenge or a bigger plan or a misdirect. Basically, there's no point in trying to figure that out right now because there's not time. All we can do right now is focus on this. And then he lets them know, But just in case, I'm circling the wagons around Joshua and around Pete's family. Who or why doesn't matter. What matters is Micah's dad. And that is such amazing growth for Artie. Such a great display of empathy and emotion. And I'm just, I'm so proud of him. I'm so happy that we've reached this place. So he tells the team that he has analyzed the text if you want to get my wheels going, you tell me you analyze the text. <laughs> it is Poe. <laughs> Jillian just did a spit take. It was so good. Get my wheels going. <laughs> I don't know what that means. I love it. Means, it. <laughs> it means something. Um, okay. The book is getting under Warren's skin in particular because the pen is not with it. So the separation of the bifurcated artifacts is really dangerous. And what they have to do is bring the two back together. And going to something that Jillian said in a previous episode, some of our most prevalent and important themes are the sort of mediumship and affect theory, which is very relevant here. And of course, I'm going to say this because Poe was writing in the 1830s, And the 19th century is prime time for spirit mediums and these ideas of transferring emotions and psychology between bodies. And so Artie describes that Micah's dad is a conduit. So he is linked to the artifact. And then this is, I think, really beautiful because of his love for the written word. And so it's like Jillian has also said in one of the very first episodes, the different artifacts affect different people. 
and for different reasons and in different ways. So this was the exact artifact that would have the most dangerous effect on Warren because he's a bookstore owner and he's clearly committed his life to reading and writing, which we're going to learn even more about later. It's at this point, Artie is really demonstrating how well he has learned to bridge the gap between emotional availability and practical reasoning, and he says, now, because we know this, I will be able to find the pen the next time your father has an attack. He knows what timestamps to look for, he knows what signatures to look for, it's all going to be fine. And so he really is trying to put everyone at ease. And then... Micah asks Artie point blank, how long does he have? And Artie is conveniently typing at his computer and continues typing and just sort of glances casually at the uh, Farnsworth. And she's like, what? Hmm? Really hoping that she'll be like, never mind, and like rethink the question and just sort of let him go. And it doesn't work because it's Micah and she has a penetrating gaze. <laughs> and re-asks the question, how long does my dad have already? And he tries to break break it to her gently, but ultimately he just says, a day, maybe two. It's dire, but a day is a long time. They can, they can do this. It's going to be really scary, but they can do this. And Artie says, until I land on something, Micah, surround him with his books, with his world. Read to him. Use what he loves to fight what's happening to him, try to keep him connected to reality if you can. And Micah does exactly that, literally and figuratively. She doesn't waste time saying, wait, Artie, what do you mean? Instead, she throws everything at the wall and starts reading to him passages from his favorite books, as well as she literally surrounds him with his favorite books. She builds sort of like a a nest out of stacked up books around him, just just in case he meant literally, because in this job, you never know. And I think this would be a great time to introduce our artifact expert for the day. Cece Ray majored in English literature and creative writing at the University of Arizona. She is the author of the Hidden Magic series, New Adult Fantasy for Lost Souls. She is an educator in Yuma, Arizona, where she is hard at work on her next novel. You can learn more about her books at ccray.com slash books. That's ccrae.com slash books. One of the things I think that we can discuss in this scene and then moving forward is the power of world building and writing and literature. So stories in general, they're very alive. I mean, they, they come from the minds of, of writers and I mean, I'm more familiar with the relationship between myself and a novel that I've worked on for a very long time. And but even with short stories, you know, that that takes so much out of out of a person and they affect each other. I mean, like readers are connecting with some person who's who's just centuries away from them sometimes. And stories are so potent that you know, it doesn't even matter if it's fiction. It's they're living, they're breathing, the characters, you know, we connect with them. It, it's really significant to me seeing this topic being, like, shown in this show. And obviously it's part of the reason why I've been sucked into it now. 
And then what the worlds of his books are actively fighting is the world that was, or the worlds that were created by Edgar Allan Poe. So, of course, I think any high school educated person will know who Edgar Allan Poe is. So, Poe was an American writer who lived from 1809 to 1849. Um, You will immediately recognize that that's a very short life, only 40 years old. And that's because very much in line with other recent artifacts that we've discussed, Poe dealt very likely with depression or some similar mental illness and also addiction and abuse of possibly alcohol and other substances. So he had a troubled life. He is probably best known for his poem, The Raven, which has the line, nevermore, it's sort of about death coming for you. And that's what the title of this episode gets its name from. Um, Other things people know about him, that he married his 13-year-old cousin, that's true. I don't have any excuse or defense for that. But I also do have a clip of Cece describing how we would characterize Poe's writing and some of the kind of dangers of becoming a part of that specific world. Theme-wise, you know, we know that all his stories are really fear-based. They really tap into those primal just terror. Um, I mean, and not really like Lovecraft. Lovecraft is very, like, existential dread. But Poe is just really just putting you through these really terrifying experiences with the, with his characters. And um, it, it's, it's, it's a driving force in our lives, fear. And so, you know, ignoring it is, is, is sort of um, trying to deny a huge aspect of humanity. And so he just totally, like, pushes you into it. And some of my favorite Poe stories are Descent into the Maelstrom. And uh, I really love Mask of the Red Death as well, which is just this whole story about, like, you can't escape death, and, um, you know, just facing fear, and you just you have to, you have to live with it, and um, the, the, the whole thing with Poe, and it makes sense that they essentially kind of made him this antagonistic force influence in, in this show, because, yeah, I mean, this kid is dealing with you know, bullying and unrequited love, and that manifests a lot of negative things that kind of this energy of Poe and what he wrote really feeds on, and it makes a lot of sense. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's paralleled with the with the story of Warren and him as a writer and his relationship with his work. Um, yeah, they, you know, they're kind of like the antithesis. You know, you have a really strong negative and you have a really strong positive in, in this story arc. Great. So then we go to the Academy. Greg tells Tamara, as they're walking down the stairs, to watch out for Bobby because he is creepy. And um, that's all we see for a moment as we return to the bookstore where, like Jillian said, We have put Warren in his nest of books, and Micah is reading David Copperfield aloud to her dad, Um, which kudos to Micah, because that is a long book, and the first half is pretty boring, (laughs) but she's reading, uh, I'm going to get hate for that, I promise I study Victorians, but she's reading David Copperfield 
Um, we continue to cut back and forth between that and the Academy. What we now see is that when this artifact has gained a foothold on Bobby, he is not just a sweet, awkward boy with a crush. He's cre creepily following Tamara, and Greg actually has a point. Not to be pro-Greg, because he is clearly the bad bully. So they are in the bookstore next, where Micah's dad utters seemingly nonsensical words, tiger and fire. But these are not nonsense words. If you are a lover of literature, um, we know William Blake's poem, The Tiger, which begins tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night. So to me, the fact that the English teacher had just given Bobby that book, which included Blake's poetry, um, is the reason that fire is on the mind of this young man. Um, because to my knowledge, and I have read Poe extensively, I can't think of any fireball explosions in Poe, but I can think of the imagery of this Blake poem, which we know is relevant. So Greg the bully opens his locker and it explodes right in his face Thank goodness, um, when he falls on the ground, we see that he has been burned, but he is alive and he's not as badly wounded as that could have gone. So back at the bookstore, they used Artie's, you know, kind of artifact database thing to track down mysterious activity where this unexplained explosion pops up as a red flag for them. And what the in-world explanation is, is that he is a football star for the Kingford Tigers. But both ways, this is clearly linked to artifact shenanigans. And Pete tells Micah what's happening. And Micah goes, okay, let's go. Like, clearly, like, I would prefer to stay with my dad, but I know I'm your partner. I gotta do this. I'm not gonna leave you alone. And... Pete says, no one can help your dad right now more than you, which is the best thing to tell her because she loves to feel useful and she doesn't want to feel like she's abandoning the job. Um, but it's a really hard place to be when the job is your personal life at the same time. And Micah says, you can't go alone. And Pete says, I'll take Claudia. And Micah says, keep her safe, which is so sweet and builds on that relationship that we got last week. And I just love everything about it um because it does a few a few things it shows michael learning to accept being vulnerable in front of people it shows micah still not letting her own issues make her forget how much she's dedicated to keeping her partner safe and it shows how much she cares for claudia and i really loved that and then pete said there's something else <laughs> i think i'm hot for your mom perfect Pete breaking the tension. It takes a second, and then Micah smiles really big, and I wrote, good job, Pete, you weirdo. And Micah, very quietly, Micah just says, I'll break it to Dad. <laughs> she understands that it's a joke, and that that's exactly what she needed to make her smile. So, back in the fancy classroom, the English teacher, Mr. Ives, confronts Bobby about a recent burglary. So in his fancy glass case, the hand punch hole is there. 
Poe's pen has been stolen. And Mr. Ives says, look, I noticed that you were really fascinated by it. And I'm not saying, you know, he, Bobby is really feeling like this is confrontational. But Mr. Ives just says, I'm going to go get a soda. And if it reappears, we'll chalk it up to some, you know, mystery. Which is a funny sort of inside joke because it is a mysterious unknown cause. But not what Mr. Ives thinks. So... He goes off and, as he had said, comes back to see if, you know, if Bobby is not admitting to it, but is going to return it. And instead of giving the pen back, Bobby gives Mr. Ives a folded piece of paper and the teacher opens it up and it just says the word wall. And Mr. Ives says, wall? Wall what? And this is when Bobby says, wall you. Does he say wall or does he just say you? I thought oh, I, just I wrote down you. wall you, but I can <laughs> double check because to me it was kind of a funny, um, Not it's not funny, but it's when we don't know why this is happening, it's very intriguing. Yes. Just as he says that, the wall opens up and sucks Mr. Ives inside. It's a great effect. Yeah. Um, it's a scary thought. And of course, if you have read any of the short stories by Edgar Allan Poe, the idea of people being trapped inside walls, under floors, etc. is super common and related to those people dying. So this, um, you know, this is scary for us. Um, and then... Claudia and Pete arrive, and they are walking down a school hallway, talking with someone who we very quickly learn is the principal, and he's concerned about losing donors. Claudia calls him out on it, uh, because that's not something you should be worrying about when your students are being attacked with fire. Um, And Pete dramatically opens the locker after he makes... Uh, the principal and Claudia stand back a bit. Pete and Claudia duck. The principal kind of doesn't because he doesn't really know what's at stake. He's just like, okay, whatever. And then nothing happens, and it's a pretty funny gag. Even though even though we see it, we're not used to seeing it with just Pete and Claudia, so it was a, a new spin on an old joke in the show. And after a moment, Pete investigates the locker and sees a note that says fire on it in the back. And we see Bobby a-creepin' on the staircase nearby. <laughs> you said a-creepin', I said a-lurkin'. But <laughs> either way, he's creeping slash lurking. Yes. Um, yes. This is one of those instances where Pete makes a sort of shot-in-the-dark question about a specific object, which normally results in someone looking at him like he has 10 heads being like why are you asking me this weird thing but here we actually get to see that approach work he says do you know anything about edgar Allan poe's pen or something like that and the principal's also like well yeah mr ives likes to collect that kind of stuff in his office like he has the information that they're looking for but he's really confused as to why that's the information that they're looking for and I think that the last time we saw this was in 105 Elements, and it was very non-persuasive to us because uh, that character who we didn't like was like, 
oh no like he clearly knew about artifacts and the gag didn't work yeah and it's the third time we've seen pete do it too because the first one was when he was in the small town in 103 magnetism and he's talking to the therapist about his pocket watch it's like you didn't think it was (laughs) important to mention and he's like no i i didn't think it was important to mention why would that be important so now Pete's actions are starting to make a little more sense to us. It's like, well, you might as well ask the most off-the-wall question first because someone might have that information and it could save you a lot of time. So don't worry about looking silly, which Pete never does, because we really want Micah's dad to get better as soon as possible. So from there, we go back to the bookstore where Jeannie is watching over a very sweaty and weak-looking Warren And Warren sort of wakes up in a moment of lucidity and looks at Micah and says oddly, if you'd been a boy, I'd have called you Sue, which is a reference we learn to a Johnny Cash song. And he says, I would have done it to make you tough. And we see this sort of real bone deep frustration within Micah because this is clearly something that is at the crux of a lot of what the issues are and that we've known about since the first episode, since that talk um, on the deck. Micah just says, I'm sorry I wasn't a boy. And there's so much emotion in that statement. She obviously isn't going to yell at her sick and possibly dying father. It causes her a lot of pain, though, to feel like she has to apologize for literally just being the person who she is and her father's response is really unexpected because he says I'm sorry I wasn't a father and Micah's kind of teary-eyed and steps away and Jeannie catches her and just says he has regrets like he knows he did some not okay stuff and he regrets it and essentially communicating he might not be able to convey that fully to you um and Micah says regrets about me and Jeannie says yes about his life and she tells Micah that Warren wanted to write books which Micah knows and she says she knows with like a bite to it as if that's part of the point of contention um I have my theories as to why that we'll get to later but she reveals to Micah something she did not know, that Warren wrote a novel, and he got rejected 12 times and then gave up and told Jeannie to burn it and hasn't written a thing since. And that makes Micah very emotional and tears start to spill. And I bet that he hoped that he could make Micah tougher than he was and be able to withstand more. And I think that he probably regrets spending so long trying to make her tough and not enough time appreciating the person who she is. And off that revelation, Micah notices the words and the ink in Warren's skin moving up his neck and onto his face, and she just says, Come on, Pete. This takes us to the school where Claudia is looking at the case with the, as Jillian mentioned, with the large taxidermied raven on the top. And she's like, you know, 
corvids are actually really brilliant. Uh, corvid meaning like ravens and crows and a variety of other birds. And I just want to call out because corvids are really intelligent and interesting and everything Claudia says is true. And there is a very cool uh, postdoctoral student named Kaylee Swift. Uh, she already has her PhD. You can follow her on Twitter at Corvid Research and get all your fun Corvid facts and photos. And it's just a great blog, a great social media account. And I would just be so happy if you went and checked it out. I will link it in the show notes. So Pete hears something in the classroom. Um, my subtitles described it as scraping. And he's like, do you hear that? And Claudia is like, hear what? And she's immediately ready. Like, all I hear is the beating. Like, she starts going off on the Telltale Heart, which is a very well-known Poe story. I just, as a character note, when Claudia goes, just the beating of my hideous, he goes, stop it. And Claudia goes, okay. <laughs> Pete's not mean, but it's really nice to see him setting a good example for field work and taking his responsibility to Claudia seriously. He can be the super fun, goofy one when Micah's around because Micah's never going to be the super fun, goofy one. That's not who she is. But this is a person who he said just in the previous episode, like, fine, she was allowed to tag along because she knows the warehouse better than anyone. She didn't sign up to risk her life. This is a dire situation, and he is, for all intents and purposes, her caretaker. And it's nice to see that he is keeping the promise to Micah of look out for your partner. It's nice to see him being the more mature one and that he has the ability to take on that role. Then Pete realizes someone is in the wall and <laughs> uses the base of the taxidermized raven to break the wall open. Um, <laughs> much to the chagrin of Claudia who resists ripping off the raven part and goes, I don't want to get avian flu, avian flu, which was like a thing when that episode came out. It was such a 2009 ra uh, reference. The bird flu was really, really scaring people. But also, I don't think you're going to get it from a long taxidermized raven. <laughs> Very old raven. Yes. Um, that's exciting because Pete has put it together at the same time as Claudia. And it's not beyond especially especially with the fact that it's Poe it's not outside of our scope of believability that both of these characters have read the cask of Amontillado if you have not it is a really good Poe I mean they're all good stories but this one doesn't always get assigned in high school it's more of like a college English class that would make you read it but it's so interesting and creepy and well written so check it out uh Pete remembers, oh, that short story, the guy who's walled up, they break in. And this is really wild that Pete goes hard with this. I imagine it's like a heavy pedestal and he knows that an old taxidermied object would have something like that holding it up. And he breaks into the wall right at the eye level of Mr. Ives, who is like sputtering and coughing and clearly needed to be rescued. And... Um, Pete's like, who did this to you? And Mr. Ives says that it was Bobby. They have to find him and stop him. Meanwhile, in a cafeteria in the fancy school, Tamara seems to be studying alone. Uh, she hears something and walks outside of the cafeteria into a hallway. 
to find Bobby being real creepy. And he hands her a note. And we don't see what it says right away. And then we cut back to the bookstore. And from that point, for the rest of the scene, we cut back and forth between the bookstore and the school. And we see Warren clearly getting worse. Micah's on the phone, not the Farnsworth with Artie, saying that she just needs help. She's getting a little panicky. Not frantic, just very, very alarmed. Um, Tamara asks what Bobby's got. He says it's a poem he wrote for her, which really freaks her out. And she says she's got to go. She smiles and turns to leave. But he grabs her arm and he forcefully shows her the note, which is not a poem, just a piece of paper that says the word mine. Meanwhile, Artie tells Micah to just read to Warren more. And she's getting frustrated because she says she's read him everything and it's not working. And Artie says you have to read something to him that he loves more than anything else. And Micah realizes that it's going to have to be the book he wrote and begs her mom to say that she didn't burn it, which she didn't. Good job, Jean. She goes to get it from where Jeannie said it was. Um, at school, Claudia and Pete suss out the situation, and they enter an entry hallway, and Pete is saying, oh, there's always a girl. And Claudia just goes, don't blame her, blame testosterone. Crazy, crazy man hormone. I want to give major props to that line, because there is, and Pete isn't doing it on purpose, but there is a risk of victim blaming, right? Because in any case, and we see uh, Bobby grabs her arm and shoves her against that wall, and that's very violent and very scary. And you can also see that they've done great makeup on this actor. He's pallid and he's really freaky looking. Um, and that, I think, metaphor or allegory of a man feeling entitled to a woman and that she belongs to him especially even though they're not dating they're not even a thing but he's just unhealthy in the way he thinks about women all of that is to say that Claudia even though Pete was making a jokey remark is like nah we're not gonna victim blame which I really appreciate. I totally appreciated it too. And Pete quickly corrects and says, I don't blame her, I blame Poe. And as they look for Bobby together, Claudia spots Tamara and Bobby on a balcony together staring at them. And rather creeped, Claudia says, crazy scary man hormone. And Pete says, check out Miss Teenage Zombie while looking at Tamara who has started to get that sunken look to her features as well. And then he basically remembers that he's not with Micah and that Claudia needs guidance. She's actually looking really scared and unsure of what to do. And he gets right back into senior agent mode and he sees that she looks freaked out and doesn't know what to do. So he puts a serious face on, talks to Bobby, and and <laughs> then she's like, Bobby, and... Uh, and Claudia whispers, Tamara. And they try to coax Bobby into giving them the pen, which didn't go well. But honestly, that's the part that Micah would normally do. In those situations, Micah is always the one to talk them down. So Pete's trying his best, but this isn't his strength. And it's definitely not Claudia's. Bobby points the pen at the ground, and a note appears that says, 
pendulum. So it's interesting to know that he's not actually handwriting all these notes. It's just appearing. I didn't notice that. Yeah. And a giant pendulum appears and swings through the hall, and it's really scary. And Pete pushes Claudia out of the way, and they fall to the ground, and you're like, oh, good, they're safe. And then straps appear from the ground and keep them pinned there, and it's terrifying. Um, But I think that the use of the pit and the pendulum is really significant in the story because with that story, if, if the listeners have read it, and, you know, it's kind of can be tough to digest Poe because he's very verbose. You know, he's writing in the 1800s, but this guy is trapped in this cell during the Inquisition, and he's being just put to these horrendous uh, attempts to put him to death in a really horrible way. And he's facing fear, which is definitely a Poe theme. It's just horrendous and terrifying. Um, and he keeps kind of missing out on, on dying, and he, he doesn't wander into the pit as he's supposed to. He's then, like, strapped to a board, and the, and the pendulum is, is getting ever closer. But ultimately, in the story, this guy never gives up. Like, he's terrified, and he's kind of accepting the fear of it all, but he never stops. He never gives up. And in the end, like, just at the very end, like, he gets saved. The pit and the pendulum is one of the ones where somebody basically makes it out alive or whatever. I mean, in Descent into the Maelstrom, the, you know, the guy survived, but he's just totally like aged and everything because he's gone through this horrible terror experience but um but yeah i was just like wow that's pretty uplifting for you poe so it seemed really really significant to me that like here's the story here's the climax that they parallel not giving up on something even when you're terrified because for me as a writer there's so much passion that goes into what you do but a lot of fear comes with that when you love something so much it comes with the fear of failure, the fear of sharing it with people. And that message, you know, it's hidden in the pit and the pendulum. If you know the story, it's like, just don't give up. So yeah, it's really scary. And while they're strapped down, we're intercutting again between Micah finding her father's novel and then Claudia and Pete trying to talk Bobby down or trying to get the pen or whatever they have to do despite being old school movie tied to the train tracks sort of. So we begin hearing the book which is called The Blue Willow Sky and what we get while we are hearing the words of the novel is the conversation where Claudia really steps up to the plate to interrupt this artifact basically you know they're saying what is this about you've got to stop blah 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 what Micah's reading shows is that this is clearly a book about her about a little girl being born and about a father having to deal with that flood of emotions of like I have to protect this beautiful precious life and I don't know how to be a father um while Bobby describes well, I need people to understand, and this goes to bullying, which I think is really important, that words have power. And people like you, he's gesturing to Claudia, who's a very beautiful woman, and Pete, who's obviously a hunky and extroverted guy. Number 82. Yes. You don't understand that. But what I think is so obvious and completely not stated by the text is that 
yeah, Claudia is really beautiful, but like she does understand that. And she dealt with mental health problems. She dealt with being underestimated and treated badly because of how off in another world she was and how unhinged people thought she was. Um, so she begins to talk to him about that and it really works. And while that's happening, Micah continues reading her father's novel, which as already said, is so powerful. Um, I didn't write anything about it being published. I just wrote that he like wrote and rewrote the novel 12 times, um, which shows such dedication and a love for a story and a commitment to the, the things that he has to say. So that's how powerful these words are to him. They allow him strength to fight against the Poe artifact and wear the pendulum down. Yeah, you know, and, and going off of the, you know, what we talked about last with, with the pit and the pendulum being what they what they use for the climax and that notion of not giving up even in the face of, like, of terror, of feeling like you're not going to make it. Um, you know, with Warren dealing with these, you know, the negativity, uh, this sort of cursed ink that's that's bringing him down, and, and his uh, Micah is reading his book that he's read, and you know, fear is something that basically got the better of him. He he put his heart and soul into something, and I feel that I feel that so tremendously. You know, I worked on my book for like 13 years, and for me, you know, it's it's always really hard to explain to people the relationship that a writer has with a book, with something that, that they put their heart and soul into. And it's always easiest, you know, for us to identify with other writers. It's like, oh, my gosh, someone who understands. But the thing is, every you know, everyone's different. Everyone, I'm sure, has a completely different relationship with their characters and the story that they're trying to tell because it comes from their own lives, their own heart and pain. And um, But, you know, I started writing in high school, and for me it just was a natural place to cope with, the everyday struggles of being a teenager. It was just, yeah, it was a safe place. It was a place where I could go to work on the things that troubled me, you know. And fiction, whenever people, you know, it's like, well, it's fiction. But fiction is also so very real to us because it comes from a living, breathing person. And, you know, I think the best fiction is the stuff that just, you know, it's, it's, re it's reality. So all of this causes the pendulum first to release Claudia and Pete's like go get it go get it and in a great movement she has the bag out and scoops up the pen in the bag uh Pete shortly after gets released from his restraints and rushes to take the pen from Claudia without losing a second like he is gonna get that to Colorado he you can tell he's heading to the airport already to get tickets on the next flight out of there doing whatever he has to do sh while shouting back at Claudia, hey, make sure to get Bobby to a hospital. The artifact still has a hold on him. In the same way, the artifact still has a hold on Warren. No one's in the clear yet. So he's doing everything he can to be as efficient as possible and we go out on a shoop, shoop, shoop box and Things are in motion. We come back in Colorado City at the bookstore and Pete arrives with the book 
and immediately asks how Warren is. Micah is like, well, he's not worse, but he's not better. Artie is on the Farnsworth and says very clearly his strength is the only thing keeping the pen from flipping out completely. Uh, he tells Pete to approach very carefully, um, but he says carefully <laughs> too much like, old personality Artie a little a little too forcefully and Pete just yells at Artie to stop yelling at him he's like Mike can you turn down the volume on that thing and <laughs> what is actually awesome is she actually does I don't know if that was in the script or just a really good acting choice but it totally worked Artie tells them to dump the pen on the notebook and stand back and they seem really hesitant to believe that that's all that is required they're like so we just have to put the pen on the notebook and he's like yeah just put it on there he's like this isn't Cirque du Soleil (laughs) which is so great um nothing happens right away and Micah seems really concerned and Artie says well it's been a while since they've been together they're probably just getting reacquainted and just as we're like that's a weird thing to say it's totally true. This this black puff of inky smoke comes out from the pages of the book and an indoor wind swirls around and ink flies out of Warren's eyes and it's scary but good. And Warren comes too and asks if he dozed off and he said he dreamed that Micah was reading to him, so he is getting some of his memories back. And he looks around, and he realizes that it wasn't a dream. He sees his manuscript beside him, and Micah smiles at him, and he realizes that she's read it. And it's just, it's really sweet. It's a wordless moment that sort of communicates all the relevant information about the healing that went on with that relationship, and how Micah realized that none of it was really about her, even though a lot of it got put onto her and that he he loved her. And I don't think that she ever really felt that or knew that deeply enough. Yeah, I, I think for her reading her father's words and knowing that he was constantly thinking about his actions with her and his responsibility to her as a father makes it more forgivable that he messed up because he messed up because he was trying in the wrong way not because he wasn't trying or didn't care yeah i personally am not a person who believes that the road to hell is paved with good intentions i think that you can do bad things with the best of intentions and that doesn't make it okay but i think intentions can go a long way to building a bridge to forgiveness Yes. That I don't think was there for Micah before. I think she thought, this is just how my dad is. This is how he feels about me. I just am a disappointment to him. So it makes sense to limit contact so that I don't always feel like I'm disappointing him just by existing. Um, And so we cut to a bit later where Micah is packing up and preparing to go. And Warren approaches and says, I don't know what it is you do for a living, but... You do it very well, and I mean that. And they hug, and that's the most direct interaction we've seen them have, and it's so good. And I don't think it means everything is healed, but I think it means that it's healing. Yes. I also really loved the line that, like, we'll be in touch, and I promise to talk about something other than books. And also it 
makes Micah make more sense because I feel like she could always count on having a knowledge of books to be a reliable way to please her dad. So that makes sense that, you know, when you even go back to Sylvia Plath in the previous episode, the first thing she does is say, okay, this is who Sylvia Plath is. She wrote this and it means this. And like, yes, Micah loves books and that's something she shares with her dad. But I think part of it was more survival instinct and it makes sense why she feels the need to contain all that knowledge within herself. Um, then she turns to her mama and gives her a big hug and it's an easier hug. And her mom tells her to take care of Pete. And Mike is just like, I always do. And Pete is waiting for her outside the store. They're like, oh, you know, are you, are you all ready? And it turns out neither of them has called a cab. So they get ready to call a cab. Um, and that brings us to the warehouse. And Mrs. Frederick arrives. Mrs. Frederick informs Artie that Pete and Micah are in Colorado Springs, and so is McPherson. He was there the whole time, and Mrs. Frederick says that it was his intent to distract them. And so, clearly, they need to get this information to Pete and Micah, who are still outside of the bookstore, and they get a Farnsworth call while also trying to phone a cab, And it shows us that both of those things are not functioning. So the cell phone has no service. The Farnsworth sees Artie's, uh, shows Artie's face. And just like we've talked about before, it's that critical moment where the information has to be delivered, but it can't. However, Pete gets a vibe. And this is so perfect because Jack told us in our interview that he wanted to use the vibes sparingly um, and not over-rely on them, but this is the perfect moment to use them, especially because Pete has bonded with the family so much. He spent so much time with them that it makes sense to me that his vibes are about like specific things or situations, and he's just like, ah, and, and Micah goes, vibe? And he's like, yes, your dad. And with the trust that these professional partners have, they burst back into the bookstore and they rush upstairs where at first we're relieved to see the parents sitting on a couch. It looks like they're watching like an old, an old projected movie, but we quickly catch on that they are frozen, not moving, and McPherson is standing there holding some sort of light upon them, capturing them in this way. They see McPherson, and he has that glint again. Oh, Roger Reese was real good at that glint. Oh, so good. He says, you two are good. I see why Mrs. Frederick drafted you. It's like... Drafted? Woo! Yeah, it's just, there's a lot, there's a lot happening with that line. And... Pete and Micah go to shoot McPherson, but he says, "Uh uh-uh, if I kill the projector, then it's lights out for mom and dad. And the conversation becomes very measured and intentional on Pete and Micah's end. And Micah, very non-threateningly, but clearly 
with her eyes threateningly, says, you hurt my dad. And McPherson says, he glimpsed the minds of one of the greatest authors in the world. He'll thank me later, which is the first glimpse we see of McPherson's philosophy we of why he might be doing what he's doing. So that's interesting. He doesn't see what he's doing as a net negative. And I think that's very interesting and not something that up until this point we would have expected. Um, and Micah, in response to he'll thank me later, says, oh, you'll be dead later. And Pete says, what do you want? And McPherson answers, I want what you risked your life to get. I don't have the means to get it myself, which is a mysterious line that we don't really know much about yet. But we can take from it that he is asking for the artifact that he... Yes, we don't know what he means about not having the means. Micah is doing very well. She's stating facts. She's not making accusations or threats, and she's not asking questions that she knows she won't get the answers to. So she just responds, you came after family. And McPherson says, Arthur started it, which is, again, not the response we were expecting. And Micah abandons her strategy of no questions at this time and says, what's that supposed to mean? McPherson says, ask him. Micah looks to Pete to see what the correct call is because it's her dad and she wants to, she clearly wants to just give McPherson the artifact and save her family, but she's very good at her job and she's not going to make that call without consulting her partner and it's a big dangerous thing that they're doing and he gives Micah the go-ahead to give McPherson the artifacts. So McPherson puts the artifacty glasses on, the thing that protects your eyes from sparks and stuff, and holds out his hand for it. And Micah just says, consider it alone. Um, McPherson turns the projector light thingy on to Pete and Micah, and the light shines in their eyes, and they look away and McPherson is gone. He has disappeared. And Warren starts to come to and realize something else, something new and else weird has happened. And just goes, what the hell was that? And Micah says, Jack the Ripper's Lantern, which is something that comes up later. And oh, it's so good. So good. We cannot spoil what that is at this time. But, you know, just at this time in the show, that's a really scary artifact. Like, Jack the Ripper was famously yeah. a bad dude. <laughs> like, if Poe, who wrote fiction about hurting people, has caused this much havoc, imagine how bad one of Britain's worst serial killers would be as an artifact. Like, it's it's incredible and scary, and such a great artifact. And Pete says something interesting that we'll get more insight into in the next episode. That says, at least we know where that is now. Huh, yeah. Um, and Micah is on the Farnsworth with Artie, and Micah says, he used us. He's used us from the very beginning. And Micah's pissed. I mean, considering he just went after family, 
and surprisingly, Artie is more pissed. You don't think that he's going to be more pissed than the person whose family was just literally attacked. And Artie just goes, no, he used me. And we go hard, cut to black, end of episode. Ooh, yes. And this is the second to last of the season. Things are real. Things are tense. I love this. Yes. So that's all I have. Are you super excited to talk about next week's episode? We're on Twitter and we'd love to hear from you. Reach out online at Warehouse13Pod or use our website to give us an email. Don't forget, we also have bonus content on Patreon, lots of bloopers, deleted scenes, etc. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time, agents. Bye. <laughs>